Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today we're talking about what's going on in Florida. We are joined with board member of Cannabis Lab and host of the Elevate Your Grind podcast, Todd Rosales. Todd, thank you for being here with us this evening. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored to be on the Hoban Minute. Well, and before we get into what's happening in Florida around cannabis, let's talk about what's going on with COVID. Uh, Florida's always in the headlines. It has been for the past couple of months with uh, how the state and how the citizens in Florida have uh, responded to COVID. Give us your perspective. What have you seen um, actually being on the ground there? Yeah, um, you know, it's been an interesting story with Florida, um, you know, at first. When, when the COVID pandemic hit, everybody was looking at Florida. They said, look at all these people on the beaches, look at all these people out and everything else. They don't know what they're doing. Everybody in Florida will tell you that that wasn't us. Um, you know, we're, we're not out there during that time, right? Those were tourists and, and, and the people that were coming to Florida. Um, you know, there are certain times of the year we don't go to the beaches. We don't go to those restaurants because it's, it's heavy on tourists and you're going to wait an hour and a half for a table. But you know, I kind of bought into what DeSantis was saying when it all started. I thought that we were handling this phenomenally. We've done a very good job protecting our elderly. Um, but I guess I was wrong. Uh, the numbers are spiking down here. The good news is the, the death rate is going down. Now, I'm only going off the, the data that's being put out by FloridaHealth.gov. They have an awesome dashboard. But the death rate's going down. However, they're only showing positive cases on the website now, and the death rate graph is not there anymore. So I'm starting to get suspicious. But to, to really answer your question, um, you know, we haven't really fully opened back up yet here. Uh, we're still quarantined. There is a, a mask order. Uh, everybody's got to wear a mask in public. It's unclear on whether it's outside or inside. Or I'm sorry, if you have to do it outside as well. Um, but I live in, in South Florida, so the tri-county area that we have down here, which is Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade, got hit the worst. And, and candidly, I think it got hit the worst because this is the sixth, uh, sixth borough of New York, and there's a lot of transplants. And when the pandemic hit New York and Manhattan, a lot of those people came down here. So uh, quickly, Todd, the, what do you, is there a name for Florida residents that they call tourists? Now, I grew up at, in New Jersey. And in, at the Jersey Shore, the tourists, the folks that came down to the beach were called the Shoebies. I don't know what Shoebies mean, um, but it was just everybody who wasn't from New Jersey or who wasn't from the shore, down the shore, was called a Shoebie. Is there a name, a name at least that you can share with us that's politically correct? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't think, I, if there is one, I don't know the official name. Uh, you know, but I also live in the, the New York part of Florida, so we're a different breed. It, it, Florida is an interesting place in itself, right? You go to Pensacola, Tallahassee area, Gainesville area, and it's very country and, and very southern. And then you come down here, and it's New York as it can be. And then you get to Miami, and Miami might as well just be its own state. So, you know, people, they, there was a joke going around the Internet, and, and I don't remember who I shared it with. But people are saying, hey, just so you know, I'm from the Pitbull part of Florida, not the Carol Baskin part of Florida. Um, <laughs> so I think it's very important that people know that. It, it's funny, Bob. I'm from New Jersey, too. And, and you know, I believe the, the people from the city classified us as the bridge and tunnel crowd. <laughs> that is fantastic. 
Well, w- thank you for sharing your perspective on uh, on COVID, and and it's great to actually hear from somebody on the ground because it's not the story that you you get uh, when you're when you're looking at the news most of the time. But what else is going on in Florida, particularly around cannabis? There's no one uh, better to ask because of the work you do with C Lab. So maybe give our listeners a little bit of background on what C Lab Cannabis Lab is, and uh, what what the current state of of cannabis is is in Florida. So, so, Eric, I really appreciate that, but I can tell you there are hundreds of better people to ask than myself. Um, but luckily, they are all part of C-Lab. Um, you know, so I get a lot of information that I aggregate from my friends, um, Ari Gersten, John Robbins, Zach Cobrin, Dustin Robinson, just to name a few, uh, my friend Paula Subchanko. These are a lot of the attorneys that are members of C-Lab. So the back of, you know, I call it C-Lab all the time, but the formal name is Cannabis Lab. And Lab actually stands for Law Accounting of Business. It was a, a group down here that was founded by Robert Friedman, who I've become extremely good friends with. Um, and it is a, it's an industry professional group for the state of Florida. And I can tell you as a state, and I, I'm sure we'll transition into this, as a state with only between 13 and 15 operating cannabis companies right now, it's a hell of a group. Uh, when you when you look at what our market is, right? Because most of the people in C-Lab are the 13 to 15 companies, but it's also a lot of service providers. And our service providers are actually servicing the entire country when it comes to cannabis. So it's an amazing group of people that Rob has put together. I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, and, you know, there's a couple weird situations that, that led me here, but I'm happy they all happened and I'm, I'm happy to meet Rob. Um, just to give you an idea, and I want to shout out how good of a person he is, I had actually lost my job um, in September, and Rob was. I, I told Rob, I'm like, "Hey, I came up, I came to the C-Lab meeting. I wasn't a member. I, I took 50 bucks out of my pocket because that was a non-member fee at the time." And Rob goes, "Put your money away. You can pay your membership dues when you get a job again." And he let me come for free uh, for until I was able to find a job. And I guess I kind of pulled the wool over his eyes because now I'm involved with C-Lab and I do the podcast, and I still haven't paid for a meeting. So. <laughs> You know, uh, when you look at Cannabis Lab, C Lab, the the core tenets, aside from from networking and uh, gathering fine groups of professionals, uh, and to your point, the influence that it's had is not limited to Florida by any stretch of the imagination. These are thought leaders and folks that are prominent in the industry, particularly as service providers, and some of those great lawyers you you mentioned, uh, Dustin, Paula, so forth and so on, that are that are really shaping how things go forward. But the core tenets. Uh, aside from idea, the idea that lab, L-A-B, law, accounting, and business, sort of focusing on that, it's education and it's thought leadership. And, you know, that, those, are, those are very, very important to us at the Hoban Law Group. That's why we do a lot of what we do so that we can educate folks that don't understand or that think they understand and then also provide that thought leadership. Um, can you comment a little bit on that, that – you know, is it a surprise to you that these folks within Florida are are generally such prominent figures in the industry overall, not just limited to the Southeast United States? It, it was a huge surprise to me, right? Because when you look at it just from a geographical standpoint, right, there's not a, there's, and, and I need to brush up on my geography, it's terrible, but, you know, none of the states that are bordering Florida have real legal cannabis programs, realistically, right? Um, we're down here all the way in South Florida too. So we're as far away from the other states that, that we could potentially do neighbor with, you know, it's not like, uh, Denver and, and Nevada and, you know, New York where you have the entire tri-county area or tri-state area, 
you know, we're, we're kind of all the way at the bottom of the peninsula. So it was kind of, it was really amazing to me to see a lot of my friends here in the cannabis industry on stage at uh, NCIA out in San Jose when I went last summer. Um, and that was a great conference for me. Actually, one of the, the people that I became very good friends with, Zach Cobran, I met him out in San Jose. I didn't even know that he was a Florida attorney until we just happened to be flying home on the same plane from the conference. So um, it, it's incredible. And I think that's a testament to the talent that we have within the cannabis lab itself and really just our state that, you know, we, we are kind of shaping the national cannabis landscape. Well, so, so let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Florida's uh, current state, if you will, as it relates to cannabis. <laughs> yeah. And just an observation. Florida takes the term medical in medical marijuana extraordinarily seriously. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't make fun of that. But this goes back to the notion that we pass a law as citizens, as Florida residents. We pass this law, and the all of a sudden there's an imposition that says we're not going to allow smokable product. Um, that was nowhere to be found. That was created from thin air, as I understand it. But again, I wasn't involved in those early stages. And because smoking a product could not possibly be medicinally beneficial. When my perspective about medical, quote-unquote, marijuana here in the United States has very little to do with medicine. Certainly, there's a medicinal benefit to the cannabis plant. We know that. The studies would suggest that. Certainly, in a regulated medical marijuana environment, the end purchaser needs to qualify somehow, some way, some way with an approved condition to be a purchaser, to be a patient. But medical in the United States, in my humble opinion, means safe, consistent, quality access to flour, oils, and infused products. No more, no less. Medicinal products that are FDA approved, that's an entirely different lane, an entirely different subject. Um, and what is it about Florida that doesn't see that distinction, doesn't make that distinction? Or am I just off base? And, and if that's the case, too, uh, I'd love to hear that from you because these are just perspectives you have from different uh, places around the country. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I got involved in the cannabis market right before they passed smoke little flower down here. And um, it was crazy to me. And, and honestly, in the state of Florida, our medical program wasn't very big before they passed smokable flower. It was a lot of, I think the, the closest thing we had to it were your traditional vape pens. Um, and what they actually had is they had these little white pods that had flour in them that went into a specific type of vaporizer. And that was the only form of flour that you can buy. And what people were doing is they were actually cracking those open and taking the flour out of it and smoking it however they wanted to. Um, I'm going to butcher the stats. And, and I told you that's kind of the basis for my show. But if I remember correctly, before they passed smokable flour, we only had about 100,000 patients. And if, if I know my, my stats now, and clearly I said I don't, um, I believe we're up over 400,000 patients now. So, you know, with the passing of smokable flour, it really had ignited the Florida market. And, you know, in my, in my opinion, and, and nobody really cares about that, um, you know, when you're going to look at it from a medical standpoint, you would think that medical and wellness, really, you would think that legislature would want you to put the purest form of that in your body, meaning the closest it can be to nature, and that's flour, right? How do you how do you harvest flour? You cut it off of a plant, you put it in something, you ignite it, and you inhale it, right? Or if you want to be a little safer, you can put it in a vaporizer, and you're going to inhale those those vapors. Why would we want to take this plant, 
put it through an extraction process, add things to cut it down and dilute it, add things to make it so it can be consumed in a different form, whether it's oils or anything else. Why would we want to add byproducts to something that actually has a huge benefit in its purest form and is not harmful to people? So to me, when you actually take looking at it from a medical perspective and you're going to tell me how I can consume it, I, I just, I don't understand that. Right. Um, and, and that was crazy to me, but they did pass smokable flour. And I think that was kind of the spark that started to ignite our industry and started to get people to go for their medical cards because the people who were doing this from a medical standpoint, they had their black market dealers already. So they didn't need to pay the $200 for the doctor for the consultation, the 75 for the state, and then pay a higher price for their products. They just went to the guy that they met in the parking lot or came to their house and sold it out of his backpack. And for the most part, a lot of those people were just grabbing stuff from California and reselling it here. So I think it was a big step in the right direction on combating the black market. And it was a right step. It was a step in the right direction for Florida as a whole. Um, Our next big battle is going to be edible. Well, I think that's a really interesting perspective that you shared around the refinement and what is closer to nature versus not closer to nature, uh, putting solvents and all that kind of stuff through the flour to get the extracted material uh, definitely calls that into question. And Bob, to your point, it's my understanding that most uh, around the country, we mostly call these businesses dispensaries, but in Florida, they call them medical marijuana treatment centers. So even in the language there, you're seeing that uh, maybe a real strong focus on the medical side. I want to talk for a second about something you said, Todd, which was that there's only about 14 licensed operators in the state of Florida. Give us some of the pros and cons of that. Obviously, some of those operators are the big guys, uh, MedMen and Acreage. Of of course, those folks have been in the, the news a lot recently, not really in the most positive light. So give us a sense of having such a limited licensing structure there in Florida, uh, what's, what do you see as a result of that? Well, it's great for the people who own the companies, but for the rest of us, not so much. And, and honestly, it's not even that great for the people who own the companies because at the end of the day, you know, they're being tasked with operating multiple different businesses under the same umbrella, right? They've got to operate an agricultural company and a farming company. They've got to operate a processing company. They have to operate a logistical company. They have to operate a retail operation. And then they've got to manage all of that together, right? Um, you know, it's unfortunate. And you know, I don't think anybody in the state of Florida really would disagree with me that forcing vertical integration is not good for the industry. Now, I think when the industry would get to maturity, if it started as a free market, there would be plenty of vertically integrated players because that's how they're going to keep their supply chain down, but they would progress to that. So backing up all the way to the beginning, and and those people I mentioned earlier are probably going to punch me in the face if I get any of this wrong, but I'll try my best. Um, I believe when they first classed medical marijuana that there was actually one of the stipulations is you had to operate as a farmer or nursery in the state of Florida for the past 30 years which as a Floridian and knowing that we're an agricultural state, I really like that they protected our farmers and they weren't just having a bunch of people coming in, buying up lands and warehouses and greenhouses and pushing out our farming community. However, with the other stipulations that were put in place, I believe only about 30 farms in the entire state were eligible to apply for a license. And the original licensing uh, distribution or whatever it was, I think 12 licenses were distributed, either 12 or 14, And then another uh, eight or so, which brings us to 22, were distributed through lawsuits, right? And so we have 22 licensed providers of medical cannabis here in the state of Florida. Of those 22, 
we had 15 operating at one point, but I think we're actually down to 13. Um, Acreage only opened up one store here in the state of Florida. They did basically the bare minimum to maintain their license. It's, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And if you look at, we have the office of medical marijuana use that puts out a report every week. Uh, they're, they're not selling much. MedMen has shut down a lot of their stores in Florida. Uh, they're not selling much. And so we have 13 companies that are quote unquote doing pretty well. Um, you know, from depending on how you look at it. And then we've got now, I don't know, anywhere from seven to nine companies that are not operating or selling their license or just have sold their license. So, you know, in a state where you only have so many companies, going all the way back to the medical definition of this, if we've allowed 22 people to provide medicine to a state the size of Florida, you would think there would be some kind of penalty for those additional seven to nine that are not doing what the license says to do, right? And I think that's really bad for the industry. And on the other hand, if you want to get into the Florida market at this point, it's not a free market. You need anywhere from 25 to $35 million to just buy a license or be eligible to buy a license, right? You're going to have to negotiate that. The current owners may want to keep some equity. I don't know. I haven't really looked at a lot of the deal structures that are being put front forward right now. But it, it, it's ridiculous, right? You have to, you know, you've got to be extremely wealthy to enter the market in Florida right now because you need that just for the licensing. Plus, you've got, you know, your competition. Look at Trulief. They've got 50 dispensaries in the state. 50. How am I supposed to open 50 dispensaries? Well, I probably need another $50 million, right? Um, I need to find a growth facility. That's going to be a few million dollars. I need to get people. That's, you know, that's more money, right? So, you know, unless you are a big multi-state operator at this point, or you just have to be someone who knows a lot of family offices and has access to capital, a ton of capital, you're not entering the market in the state of Florida. So I think that's bad for our state. I think it kind of screws up our free market. And I, I hope, you know, I, I hope things change. Well, talk about freeing up the, 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 the free market or, or opening up something based on market principles. The concept of vertical integration is legislative um, engineering, right? It Vertical integration is a concept that happens to maximize uh, efficiency in most industries. It's typically not imposed by the government as a way to do business, right? Milk producers and distributors don't necessarily own the cows and the farms, the law doesn't require, you know, the, the folks that make your local milk products to own cows. But in this industry, the legislative requirements began to go towards vertical integration. And while it might on the surface appear to be an efficiency thing, to your point, it isn't an efficiency thing. And the notion behind vertical integration, having been involved in the policymaking in Colorado and multiple other places, is this is a brand new industry. It comes with stigma. It's perceived by so many to be a vicious, you know, drug. And the folks that are going to operate in it are going to be less than savory characters. This is the mentality that is out there in some form or fashion. Now, we've seen in the industry that is not true. It can't be true, particularly with the dollars you describe being involved, that things have to be professionally run and compliance is key. But the notion of vertical integration does not achieve efficiency in this industry. Instead, it minimizes the number of actors and operators. So the state, in a risky new 
mason industry that's being regulated can only have to deal with 22 principles or 22 companies versus 68 companies because all of a sudden there are independent cultivators. So that's a little bit of the genesis behind it. But in Florida in particular, the idea of vertical integration is controversial. In fact, it's the subject of a lawsuit. And I don't know all of the details of a lawsuit, but it's my understanding that a company has sued uh, the government for uh, effectively requiring and legislating vertical integration as a as a mandate and saying that it's unconstitutional. Uh, what can you generally tell us about that, understanding that you're not an attorney and you might not be up to very specific details as to what's happening in that case, uh, but how do you think that might impact this industry? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, and the entire, the entire state of Florida is really held up on that case. I mean, there's actually, you know, and this is kind of in the rumor mill, saying that the Department of Agriculture, the Office of Medical Marijuana, and I forget which one actually controls the licensing. Um, and by the way, shout out to Nikki Freed. She's the one who really, really pushed our, our, our Commissioner of Agriculture. She's the one who really pushed our medical marijuana program forward, and, and I hope she gets the credit for that. We were lucky enough to have her on kind of a, a C-Lab special. But going back to that case, um, there, there's, you know, the rumor mill is saying the reason that they haven't done any more rounds of licensing is because the, the Department of Agriculture keeps taking L's on this case and they keep losing and it keeps going to a higher court, going to a higher court. And, you know, they're, they're basically waiting for this case to be resolved before they start even considering issuing any licenses. Now, that has not been confer- confirmed. It's strictly a rumor, but it makes sense. So it's my friends at Ackerman that are, that are handling this case. And I, right at the beginning of COVID, I want to say like four weeks in, they did the Zoom hearing. Um, where the, the lawyers at Ackerman versus the department, you know, they had their hearing in the uh, Florida Supreme Court. I watched that hearing. I can tell you from watching that hearing, I didn't understand any of it. Um, I mean, I understood it, but I didn't see any kind of outcome, any kind of, oh, I think it's going to go this way or go that way. After the fact, I, I talked to a few people at C-Lab. I'm like, do you understand that? Like, nope, we, we don't have any more information than we did before the hearing. And honestly, I haven't seen any piece of news on, on that case since the hearing. So I'm very confused to where we are with it. Um, you know, hopefully Ari or Zach or, or, or John can reach out and, and clear that up for me. But, you know, I, I feel like we're kind of in limbo right now because of COVID, because of everything that's going on. The state just doesn't have enough time to pay attention to this and resolve it. So, you know, and, and the other thing that people don't realize, too, is it would be an awesome victory if we broke up vertical integration, but that's really just step one, right? As with cannabis legalization, one day they made it legal, but there was no framework behind it. So at this point, we don't know what it's going to look like post-vertical integration. If Flora Grown wins and they break up vertical integration, how many different license types are we going to have? How many, what's the quantity of those licenses going to be and what's it going to look like? Because there's still you know, uh, city and, and county municipalities that haven't approved cannabis facilities in their area. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens after that case. But I'm at the point where I would love to just see a yes or no. I mean, I, you know, I have a sales background, right? First thing you want to hear is yes. The second thing you want to hear no, but you want to hear fast. And, and neither of those are happening. Well, those numbers are just staggering. The price of a license, you said 25 to $35 million plus a state the size of Florida you have to have a lot of locations to, to be competitive with the with the folks who are already there. So, um, well, he, Eric, just particularly with an aging population, or at least that's the that's the perception, right? When you look at Southeast Florida, mm-hmm. Todd, am I am I 
what what I mean, I, I can't expect you to know the specific demographic numbers, but do do retirees tend to uh, utilize medicinal cannabis? What are the studies in that regard? Because in most jurisdictions, the average age is, you know, 28 to 38, 45 uh, in that range. Uh, What do you know about uh, senior cannabis use in the state of Florida? Well, I definitely don't have stats on it, Um, you know, and and it's not even one that I'm going to pretend to make up or even try to ballpark. But I know that there is a massive senior population for our medical marijuana treatment centers. And there's a massive senior population down here. And realistically, um, you know, I mean, listen, we have a lot of hospice down here. We have a lot of long-term care. We have a lot of people that, you know, when I meet somebody in the country and they ask me where I'm from and I say I'm from South Florida, I usually get, depending on their age, oh, my parents live there or my grandparents live there. And, of course, I hear that every time. But there is a very large senior population down here, and they are cannabis users. You know, I found out that about my grandfather after the fact, after he passed away, my parents let me know about that. A lot of the people that he knew were, were users as well. I don't think they made it to the medical cannabis program, but there are a lot of seniors that are taking advantage of the program. And I mean, that's why we, we have to have call in, you know, call in hotlines and telehealth and everything else for them because they can't use technology such as being or using the internet to figure it out. Todd, let's zoom out for a second and uh, talk about federal legalization. Uh, you had mentioned it. I love the point that you raised that, uh, you know, the first step is breaking up vertical integration, but then there's always a next step. And people are always a little bit, uh, they want the quick victory without always looking at what the unintended consequences of that victory might be. Give us your thoughts on federal legalization, uh, whether or not it may be imminent or just how you feel about it. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I'm in the cannabis industry. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a patient and everything else, so obviously I want federal legalization. But I look at the, the current state of our economy. I look at the current state of our country and, and everything that's going on. And, you know, as somebody who has no political experience and is definitely not the brightest person in the room, it seems very obvious to me that one of the ways to respark our economy and grow is to legalize cannabis. And I'm not just saying like, hey, we're going to be the number one people in cannabis in the world and we're going to have the best smokeable flower in California. Cannabis is going to dominate the world. It's very far from that, right? When you look at the cannabis industry, you know, the, the country is suffering and it had been suffering. And, you know, I come, I come a little bit from the investment world. And if you look at different sectors, retail, agriculture, and logistics. Those are three sectors that Wall Street for a very long time has been saying are dying, right? There's talk about a lot of strip malls being turned into doctor's offices and other things, right? That, that the mall is going away. Brick and mortar is going away. Truck drivers are going to be replaced. Um, farmers have, have struggled for a very long time. So if we look at the cannabis industry, this is a brand new industry that doesn't exist. For the most part, it's not being taxed because it is a medical industry and you know we can get into how it's being taxed on the recreational or adult use side and it's being overtaxed but you know for the most part it's not being taxed we're not taxing it down here in florida um so how do we stimulate the economy going forward well let's legalize cannabis on a federal level we're going to start bringing back agricultural jobs and we're going to bring them back in a real way because those farms aren't going to need to be tied to a company as a whole so maybe they just use cannabis to stimulate their farm and and get that going and and bob and i had talked about this it's not just cannabis for smokeable flour it's 
cannabis for industrial hemp and not CBD, folks. This is talking uh, building materials, fibers, clothing, plastic replacements, all this other stuff, right? Um, cannabis is not just an industry. It is a commodity that's going to be infused into the economy as a whole, right? And I'm kind of like outkicking my coverage here as far as my knowledge, but I, I can only imagine if we create a new industry, we're creating an entire new tax stream revenue, we're reigniting retail environments, giving retail jobs back to the country. Uh, we're reigniting logistics companies, and we're going to bring truck drivers back. And then beyond that, we're also going to reignite um, agriculture, what this, what this country desperately needs, right? Um, you know, beyond that, I think the goal for this year is that the cannabis industry is going to do about $15 billion, right? Now, that doesn't seem like a large number, but if you think about it, we've got what, 33 states with a, with a legal cannabis thing, and it might have grown since last time I checked, maybe it's 37. But in the states where we have legal cannabis, we're only targeting the people that are looking to smoke it or consume it for its traditional use, and we haven't even captured 100% of the black market yet. The black market is still thriving. So when you put all those numbers together from the, the revenue that we're seeing now, once we start getting a more people coming over from the black market, we have – uh, adult use and, and medical use in 50 states, and oh, by the way, we're getting into CBD as a wellness product. We're getting into hemp fibers and hemp building materials and everything else. I can only imagine how big this industry is going to be in the tax revenue that's going to come off of it, right? Um, I think you and I in our pre-call, and I've been kind of on the soapbox here for a little bit, we talked about the, the repeal of, of alcohol prohibition, right? The repeal of the uh, prohibition of alcohol stimulated the U.S. economy, and part of the reason that they repealed it was by pro doing the prohibition of alcohol, alcohol sales actually went up. People started drinking more. Um, it became unsafe, but realistically, they missed the revenue. They missed the tax revenue from alcohol sales because they weren't getting that anymore, and more people were consuming it. Um, and funny enough, I don't think a lot of people realize when they repealed prohibition – only 17 states in the country repealed alcohol prohibition, and then the rest of the country repealed it kind of going forward over the course of the next few years. And there's still a few dry counties there today, but I, I believe that if we really want to look at how do we recover the, the economy of this country is we need to be leaders in cannabis from a medical standpoint and from an industrial standpoint for sure. Now that's what I'm talking about. That is uh, that is fantastic and, and and a really great rundown. And and if that was your soapbox, I I, I want you to stand on that more because that was awesome. But think about 15 billion dollars. By the way, here's an, an example I always use to uh, to give the equivalent. The NFL is reported to generate about 15 billion dollars in annual income. If the NFL does something, Congress stops in their tracks and holds a hearing to think about the impact it has because of its alleged popularity, but combined with its revenue generating capabilities. And certainly those, those dollars cascade into additional dollars market by market. But the point is that this is not some small cottage industry any longer. It's not some esoteric thing that all of a sudden um, has taken a prominent stage. It's gotten there and gotten there quickly. And on the federal legalization element, you make excellent points. And, and we've talked about similar topics about why cannabis legalization makes the most sense now to avoid a potential depression or even just a recession, so forth and so on, looking historically. 
But it also addresses another thing that is influential in our times, and that's the Black Lives Matter movement and the social (laughs) justice elements around that. I mean, legalizing cannabis really takes major steps towards exacting social justice along along those those lines. Um, If you look at the racist roots for the Narcotics Act and the Marijuana Tax Act in the 30s, and Harry Anslinger, the former Narcotics Bureau treat chief, the equivalent of the DEA at that point in time, and his reported you know, anti-Semitism and racism and so forth and so on as driving decisions to make this plant illegal. And then you look at the disproportionate number of folks incarcerated for cannabis use, which leans towards minorities. And when you further look at some of the other social justice issues. This, it's just begging for cannabis to be legalized now. And let's not get political, but we do have an election in November. And, you know, if you read the news one day, Biden's got a 12-point lead. If you read it the next day from another source, Trump has a 20-point lead. Uh, The reality is that none of those polls are accurate. We saw that with the results of the last election. Do you have, without, you know, politics aside, do you have a perspective on whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, or otherwise, what is the future for this in the short term? Do you think we see any movement at the federal level? I mean, I don't think so. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's excited about it. I haven't seen a ton of news on it. Trump's administration is targeting cannabis companies for mergers right now because of their own inherent bias. Um, Listen, I'm middle of the road, right? I've, I've been a Democrat. I've been a Republican. I've jumped over the fence many, many times. And do you know what I think about this election, Bob? I think literally this is the definition of picking the lesser of two evils. And, and I couldn't tell you which one it is, right? Well, but um, picking the lesser you know, of I, two evils is still choosing evil, according to Jerry Garcia. So I, I just thought well, I'd point that, that out. <laughs> that, that's my problem. I look at this election. I go, okay, those are my choices. Um, now I understand Chaz a little bit. No, I'm kidding on that. But <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I think, listen, it, I'm not the first person to say this, but as somebody who is middle of the road, I believe most people in this country are middle of the road, but we hear the most from the people on both ends because that's what sells news. That's what sells advertising. That's what causes clicks and everything else. I think the people of this country are a lot more aligned than they were led to believe. And I think for the first time ever, and it, it's getting close, i really hope to see some kind of true third-party candidate come out and make a run for it, whether they're Democrat, whether Republican, whether they're independent, whoever it is. But, you know, if these are our two choices going into November. Um, listen, I don't know if they're ever going to be a qualified person who's ever going to run for president again because it's a thankless job. I mean, at, at any given point, half the country is going to hate you no matter what because that's what the media makes them do. And you know, I, I can probably go on a rant for this for another half hour, but I probably wouldn't have a place uh, in the world anymore. I'd probably get hit by cancel culture, but, you know, um, that's how I feel. I'm, I'm not happy about our, our choices. I'm not happy. I, I Listen, these politicians have been there for a very long time, and all of a sudden at age 70, age 80, they're saying that they're the ones who are going to make change. Well, what the hell were you doing for the past 20, 30, 40 years? Well, we know what Biden was doing for the last 20 or 30 years, and it, it's not a pretty record, and, and Trump hasn't made himself uh, uh, very well uh, received over the last several years. But I would just Trump, note that— Trump, Trump needs to listen to the Pop Brothers at Law and shut the ass <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, you make a, make a great point, but, but just—, just on that one, I've got a good friend in, in the Netherlands, and he says, uh, Bob, the, the greatest country in the world, and you have two 80-year-old men running for president 
well, couldn't you do better? Can't we do better? But to your point, Todd, I don't know if the system's set up for us to have enthusiastic. And it's not about age. It's just about motivation and change to your point. You don't put an 80-year-old in office and expect them to do something different that than they've done for the last several years. So um, it is quite a, uh, quite a conundrum here. Yeah, well, Todd, as I, as I think back to the very beginning of this conversation, I recall you saying uh, you weren't the guy necessarily to talk to, to represent Florida. I, I couldn't, couldn't disagree more, man. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation with you. You were very enlightening about what's going on in Florida. It's wonderful to get your thoughts on this. We need to get you on again because we didn't get, even get to talk about the Elevate Your Grind podcast and uh, all the work you're doing to bring legitimacy to the industry through storytelling. So we will have you on again soon because uh, there's so much more to talk about. Well, I want to talk about two other things the next time, Todd, and we'll set the table for this. I want to talk about the name John Morgan, who's been so influential, and to get some impact there in Florida. But I also want to talk about oranges. Florida is known <laughs> for oranges. And I'm told that Florida's production of oranges has decreased substantially in recent years. So we don't have to get into it now, but tune in next time when we have Todd to talk yes. about a lot oranges. To look for, a lot to look forward to. Todd, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to be here with us tonight, and uh, we'll be talking with you soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to just get a shameless plug in there. Find us on YouTube, Elevate Your Grind, give us a subscription. Um, I'd love it. You know, a lot of if you enjoyed my rants today, you'll, you'll see a lot of them on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.